Hey everyone, it's Erica. I've prepared something special for you. I wanna invite you to my one-of-a-kind five-day challenge where I'll be sharing how you, along with thousands of others, can start investing with confidence. You're probably thinking, Erica, I've never invested into the stock market, or I don't have a ton of money lying around. But that's exactly why I created this challenge for you. It doesn't matter if you have lots of money to start with or next to nothing. You'll discover easy and fun ways to start generating passive income, multiply your money, and create a future of financial independence without the guesswork, complexity, or risk when it comes to investing. The challenge is right around the corner, so secure your spot by clicking the link in the show notes. And by the way, this challenge is totally free. So click the link in the show notes or go to erica.com slash invest. That's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest. Again, that's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest to secure your spot. Now back to the episode. 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. What is the thing I'm trying to be a part of? For most people, it's everyday life. Rachel Cruz, she is a personal finance pro from Ramsey Solutions. Rachel Cruz, who is also the daughter of the financial guru, Dave Ramsey. She's a national best-selling author, financial expert, host of The Rachel Cruz Show. Your money, your net worth has become your self-worth in our world today. And like that number plays such a role in someone's life. What is that first point of change for people who feel like they are hopeless and will never get out of their money issues? I think the very first thing is just... I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So let's talk about money. If you had to say, this is the one thing I want everyone to do to be better with their money, what would that one thing be? It's along the lines of just being intentional with your money. So like on a tactical sense, a budget, I mean, I think that, you know, when you win with money, it's not on accident. And I think a lot of people who maybe are struggling or living paycheck to paycheck, or they feel like, I just feel like I can't get ahead. This like deep belief that money's not going to just appear, you know, in your savings account, right? Like there has to be this level of proactiveness and intentionality. And I just think the monthly budget, it's just so helpful to be able to say, okay, here's my paycheck. Where is it going? And I want to be the one that's telling it where to go versus it just leaving. And I have no clue, right? So I always think about like during tax season, especially when you look back and you're like, oh, wow, I made this much money last year. And if you have the big question mark of where did it all go, then that means maybe intentionality isn't part of your plan. So I think the one thing is just being purposeful, being intentional. Do you like a pen and paper budget or Excel sheet or an app? Yeah, I use an app called Every Dollar because it connects to my bank account. And mm -hmm. so I like that because the transactions come in and you can kind of drag and drop them to the category. But you can do pen and paper. You can do, I mean, yeah, anything. And so... That's what I like about this part of personal finance too, is it's, you know, fifth grade math. It's like income yeah. minus expenses plus giving and saving, like should equal zero. And it's just, you're just giving every dollar a name. And what about people who say, okay, I've tried the budget and still at the end of the month, I'm left with close to zero. Where should they be looking to cut their expenses? Yes. So this is always an interesting conversation because I feel like, especially in America, a lot of our you know, wants have slipped into needs and we just feel like, no, we have to have this standard of living or this exactly the way I think life should be. And all of that is a need, but true needs are your housing, you know, so rent or your mortgage, utilities, transportation, and food. Like that's it. Right. And even within those categories, 
there can be a lot of wants within those, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to really strip down as much as possible. So cutting expenses for sure on things, you know, I mean, whether it's subscriptions or delivery services, like things that kind of end up being a part of your life that again, you associate with like, well, this is the rhythm of my life and this is how it's always been. But I challenge that so much where I'm like, okay, look to see seriously where any amount of money can help because, you know, the average, it's like 40% of Americans can't cover a thousand dollar emergency in cash. Like that's where we are right now. And so any amount of money that you can find is huge. And obviously bringing more income in is helpful on the other side of the equation, cutting those expenses, which is hard and no one wants to, right? I'm like, it's not fun to live a certain lifestyle. And then you're like, oh, I have to go down. Like I have to cut some of that. But for long-term game of just having savings in the bank, having a level of safety and a level of peace and not stress, it's worth cutting for now. Do you think of these things as short-term changes? I mean, could someone say short-term cut everything besides your absolute needs so that in the long-term you'll be better off financially? Or should we really be thinking about this as like implementing these long-term changes? Yeah. I mean, I like to think of it, I'm a spender naturally. So I want to say short-term for you, for people, because I'm like, I want you to be able to enjoy your life. But also I think what is amazing, people do like the no spend challenges and all of that. But I think what that stuff reveals is like, oh, I can live without things that I thought I had to have. And then suddenly stuff and all the things that, you know, you had had that you cut out, you realize, oh, I can live life like this. I can probably lower a level of my lifestyle, again, just to have that margin. And so whether, you know, a year from now, if you have a raise, maybe you pay off debt and you have more income coming in that you're actually keeping versus sending out into payments, you know, whatever it may be that, you know, eventually, hopefully, gradually, you can go back to a certain level of lifestyle that you want. But I always want you to stay within your means and yeah. never and never exceed that. I like doing something with my audience called the happiness test, where we go through the budget line item by line item. And anything that makes you really happy, you highlight in green. Anything that makes you not that happy, you highlight in red. And then things that are like meh, you highlight in yellow. And you'd be surprised at how many things people are spending in that don't really make them happy. Mm. So it's like you can cut all of these things that don't really make you happy without affecting the quality of your lifestyle. It's so good. And that's the coolest thing, right? Well, and I love that. And even to that point, I'm like, yeah, because you're actually questioning what you're spending. And again, I think we just get in these rhythms and you look up and it's been eight, nine months of just living a certain way. And you're not questioning what you're spending. It's like, well, I've always just done this. We do this every Saturday. So that's just what we do, you know, but then yeah. you actually look at it. And I love that of saying rating of your happiness of like, what, what is it? What brings you joy? Right. Or whatever. Yeah, what yeah. brings you joy? It's, it's like so the Marie good. Kondo, yeah, but applied to money. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what about things that people are doing that they absolutely should stop right now? if they want to be better with their money. Yes. Getting margin, I think, is just a huge part of winning financially, again, from a mathematical sense of seeing like dollars in the bank, but also when it comes to your mental health. Like I think there's a level of peace and stress and anxiety that is lowered when you're not living paycheck to paycheck or you're not, you know, one crisis away from a complete financial emergency where you're like, oh gosh, if I lose a job and lose a paycheck, I'm screwed. Like, like, mm -hmm. you know, that brings a level of anxiousness. So anything that I can lower that is big. So for me, getting out of debt and not having debt payments, I think is just, it's massive, you know, and I, and I know debt is such a normal part of our culture. And, yeah. you know, so whether it's, you know, car loans or personal loans or student loans, you know, you can fill in the blank of anything. Challenging that, I just love the exercise of saying, okay, if none of this went out in payments and this was my money, how can I get my money to work for me by investing and doing these things versus sending it to the bank? So I love, I love being debt-free and, and really having a say and autonomy over your life and your money. Are you a debt snowball kind of person or debt avalanche? I'm a debt snowball. Okay, so maybe <laughs> explain to the audience what debt snowball means. Yeah, so debt snowball is where you pay off the smallest amount of debt first, the smallest debt first, regardless of the interest rate. Where debt avalanche, you pay off the highest interest rate first. And debt snowball, yeah, you pay minimum payments on everything. So stay current, but you're going to attack the smallest one first. And then once that's paid off, you have the minimum payment. Technically, you're paying on the smallest one. It rolls over to the second smallest and you keep going and going. So I, I just believe in this method so much because I think one part of personal finance that people don't put into the equation is you the person. Like me, you, right? And, and there's something about the human spirit that when you start gaining momentum on anything, I mean, this could be if you're trying to lose weight, to if you're, you know, trying to do a project at work and you actually start to get some wins, like whatever it is, you start to get momentum and it does, it just helps you. I think there's a psychological game there that you really believe I can do this because too, I think for a lot of people that I talk to, it feels like being out of debt, it feels impossible. Like it feels like there's just no way that other people can do that. 
but I can't, whether it's because of your income situation, your debt level, whatever it is, it can just feel impossible. So what I like about the debt snowball is it inserts hope yeah. that you think, I never thought I'd get rid of that, you know, $1,200 credit card bill that keeps going over month to month to month to month to month. Like I never thought I actually could pay it off, but I lowered my expenses. I, I took the red out of my budget yeah. and my yellow that you talk about and I throw it at the debt and I actually see it gone and realize, oh, that is possible. Okay, I can, I can do that. And so that hope is inserted and math just can't do that. And I get mathematically that the <laughs> avalanche works. I get that mathematically it's correct. But also if we were doing math, I don't think we'd be deep in credit card debt either. So I yeah. think there's a level of like, okay, there is such hope when you get those quick wins and it's just motivating until you get to the big student loan for most people. And it's like a, you know, a six figure student loan. That's the last one. It's like this mountain to climb. That which, was me. $200,000 of student loans. Yeah. Which is so hard. And that's like so normal to, I mean, I feel like there's so much of that. So that, that is the part that I always feel, I'm always like, okay, when you get to that last one, it's like, oh, it's the mountain to climb, but you can do it because you have no other debt payments. Yeah. You can throw that, throw that money at it. With that though, even with the larger amounts of student loans or whatever it is, I think it's just setting it into mini goals. So yes. the same way that using debt snowball makes you feel like you're accomplishing things because you are going for that smallest loan amount first and you're tackling that. When you have these larger amounts with the same interest rate, then you have to pay it off no matter what. So you just break it into mini goals. So instead of saying, I have to spend, I have to tackle $200,000 of student debt, you say, okay, $10,000 is my first milestone. $20,000 yes. is my second milestone. And you really break it down because I think to your point, personal finance is so personal and there's this psychological element of it. You have to feel like you're getting these wins. Otherwise, if the goalpost seems too far away, it gets very, I don't know, it's hard to be it's motivated daunting. by it. Yes. It's daunting. For it's sure. Just, huge weight on your shoulders. And as I'm describing it, like I can still remember how it felt for me when I realized I had that much instant loans and was trying to figure out like, how am I going to tackle this? Yes. You know? When I love that you say that too, because I'm not a big fan of debt consolidation in general. Student loans is the one that I'm like, I'm okay with, because usually you're not going back into student loan debt for a lot of people. So the behavior change, you know, isn't necessarily an issue there. But I still like keeping them separate because for a lot of people, right, they have they have multiple student loans that add up to one big one. And so keeping them separate too, to your point of like knocking out the smallest one within yeah. that student loan. Yeah, I love that idea because it is, you need, the, you need the wins so that it doesn't feel like a mountain, right? That you're of like, course. okay, I'm taking one step at a time. Of course, I have to say here though, like mathematically, we both That's know right. that the, op <laughs> know. the yes. optimal way is the debt avalanche where you're targeting, if you have, let's say if you have student loans at 6% and then a credit card debt at 21%, even if the credit credit card amount is larger, mathematically, it's more optimal to target that and tackle that first. But I see both. Like yeah, I, I know totally. people are very, some people are very like snowball all the way or yes. avalanche all the way. Yeah. But I see both. I, I understand the pros and cons. Totally. Because it's a, it's for me, it's like a, it's a logical approach mm -hmm. with the debt avalanche or it's more of like an emotional approach with the debt snowball. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so yeah, there's, there's something about it. And, and the studies have, I feel like I've seen conflicting studies, but other ones that have shown like how, which one's out faster. But I feel like the snowball, I've seen more and more people gravitate towards that. Again, kind of just what our conversation has been of like, oh yeah, it feels good to like yeah. cross stuff off a list, right? You feel like you're being effective of something with your money. So yeah. that's great though. I was recently helping a friend get her finances in order and had her pay off a credit card loan that was I think around $1,000. And the way she felt when she did that, it was so worth it. And I didn't even care what other debt the interest rates were. It was just like the fact that it was $1,000 and she had $1,000 in her checking account, could afford to pay it off. That was a huge win. Yes, I know. I will get calls on the Ramsey show all the time. And they're like, okay, well, I have, you know, $20,000 in savings and I have a $8,000 car loan. I'm like, write a check today. Like, <laughs> like get today, like today, just, just get rid of it. And it's like this okay, I can do that, right? I know that's not everyone's story that yeah. they have that that amount, but even that, like you're saying, you have it in the bank and you're like, oh, there's just this a level, it's a level of autonomy. Like it's a level of freedom yeah. that you feel where you're like, okay, Toyota Motor Company doesn't own part of my paycheck. Like I own it. Like I'm working hard. And when the money hits my account, it's mine. Mm -hmm. And I have the freedom to say where it goes or what to do with it. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. 
We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. What is the most frustrating type of call you receive on the Ramsey show? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Oh, the most frustrating. The housing conversation has been really big recently, obviously, because of the housing market. And as a homeowner, I just know how expensive it is, right? And so like when things break and you got to replace roofs, I mean, like there's just a lot, a lot of expenses. And so I'll get these calls from people, you know, and you know, ages probably vary, but that that mid twenties, late twenties caller where they've been in a career for a good bit, but they still have, you know, six figures of student loan debt. They have a car payment. They have, I mean, they have, you know, and they're living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have a ton of savings and they're like, no, I need to buy a house. 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 And I'm like, I understand why. Like, I understand why you want to be a homeowner and that that's like the next big step for you financially. But please be in a good place financially so that this doesn't completely burden you. Because if you have no savings and tons of debt and then, you know, you're, even your heating and air goes out. I'm like, Do you, it's going to cause this massive deeper in a financial hole for you. And you're going to be stressed. You're going to be panicked. And this house is not going to be a blessing. It's going to be a curse. Something being wise that I'd say that Erica or a car loan. A car loan is the one type of debt that drives me nuts, just mathematically. Me too. That I'm like, you're yes, I'm like, you are paying for something that's going down in value, paying interest on it. And it's something to get you to from point A to point B, but it's become this like total label that we put ourselves of what kind of car I drive is who I am. And you're impressing someone at a stoplight you'll never meet in your room. I mean, there's a part of me that I'm like, and you're being really stupid financially when you're doing that. So so the car loan too drives me nuts. We have at home, we have wealthy neighbors in this apartment. And so we're surrounded in our parking spot. We have a supercar on the right side, a supercar on the left side. And we have a $17 a day rental. (laughs) And like, they're so worried that we're going to ding their nice car doors. And honestly, probably net worth wise, you're probably doing better than they are. Let's be honest. Oh, that's so. Funny. But it's true. Like it, it has become such a status symbol, and you want to, yes. you want to show. But then it causes you to spend more than you can afford at that time. Whereas if you wait maybe a few years until you're in the place financially where you can just buy that car outright, you might be fine. I was reading the um, Psychology of Money. I don't know if you've read that oh, book. Oh, so it, good. So Morgan great. Housel. Yes, and he talks about being a valet in D.C. And he was like, and he said, and I realized, you know, at, at a certain point after all of these like Lamborghinis, you know, all these cars, he was like, I wasn't looking at the the, gu- the guy or the girl driving. I was looking at the car. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I turned it to myself of like, I would love to drive this car. You're not looking at the driver and thinking, oh, I want to be him. Who is that? Like, you know, but we think in our heads, Oh, if I have this nice car, everyone's going to be impressed with me. They're not impressed with you. They're impressed with your car. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's like this whole identity shift. So when I read that part of the book, I was like, brilliant. It's so true. It's so true. It's so true. And cars are great. And I'm like, yeah, if you can pay for it, get you a great car. I think it's awesome. But don't go into debt for it financially. It drives me nuts. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same thing, though, even with the house, too. I think there's so much spending based off of what you see your friends are doing and wanting to keep, at least stay on par with them. So if your friends are buying houses, it's like, oh, I need to buy a house to show them that I'm not falling behind. I think that a lot of us, that's our biggest fear is feeling like you're behind the curve. That's right. And that's what's interesting too is, you know, for for 18 years of your life or even up to 21 years of your life, everyone's pretty much in the same mindset, right? You go through school Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you graduate and everyone goes to college and then it's like after that undergrad, People either, you know, maybe go to law school, maybe become a doctor, go to go to medical school. They start their own business. They go get their mat. Like, they, you start to branch off. And then that's when I felt like, oh, suddenly everyone around me is not a peer anymore. 
you're starting to see people, whether it's like, quote unquote, falling behind or other people like shooting off. And, and that's when the comparison started for me where I realized, oh, we're not on the same playing field anymore. Like everyone is like every man for himself. And then you just, you do, you start to compare whether it's job titles, marital status, like whatever the thing is, you just start to like look at everyone's life. And it's so interesting. Do you, we were just talking before we started recording about how much you travel and everything. Do you feel like it's a, a very American thing, the comparison idea, or do you see it other cultures everywhere? Is it a human, is it a human idea? I think it's quite universal. Yeah. I think it's quite universal. Yeah. yeah. Even my grandma in Japan still like wants to look nice because she's going to go out to her friends. She wants to have like the nicest purse. I don't think it is an age thing. I don't think it's a culture thing. I think it's everyone. You it's want like to feel mm-hmm. like you want that validation, that external validation to show yeah. that you're doing things right. Yeah. And it's so wild how that, in a sense, that motivation and Seth Godin talks about in Tribes, his book. You know, we, we're, we're all kind of created to be part of something, right? So you don't mm. want to be the, the loner out there. I think that, like, I think we're made to, like, be in community, not be isolated. So there's, like, this innate part of us that I'm like, I want to be included, right? Like, yeah. I want I, I to I feel like I'm doing what you're doing. But then when you start to realize, oh, but what am I being included in? And it's for the Joneses, keeping up with the Joneses. I'm like, yeah, but the Joneses are broke, right? If 70% of Americans yep. are living paycheck to paycheck. So I'm like, you really have to sit and question like, okay, what is the thing I'm trying to be a part of? And what's hard is for most people, it's everyday life. It's just, you know, having two, you know, two cars per family, owning a house, sending your kids to school. I mean, like, it's just life. And so really bucking up against that and asking those hard questions. It is, it's a hard thing. It's difficult. I'm not saying it's easy, but yeah, it's so, oh, it's so huge. Again, just even for the peace of mind, (laughs) not letting your stuff just own you. And that's what happens. I feel like I've been on both extremes. What else with money should we talk about? Let's talk about lack of savings. Because yeah. I feel like that that's another huge issue that I run into with people, that they just don't have the ability, either the ability to save or just even the concept of like just having a good old-fashioned emergency fund, I feel like is so old school and people yeah. kind of roll their eyes. Because I feel like whether you're scrolling TikTok or Instagram, whatever it is, like a lot of the people in our space, they're like, no, just go big and buy an apartment complex. They're like, you know, like they're like, go big and send these like old, more traditional, not sexy, not exciting, not fun principles with money still work yeah. and still are really key. And so, you know, saving up, you know, I love the idea of paying off debt, having a small emergency fund before you do that. But then even just saving, I tell people three to six months of expenses mm-hmm. and put it like in a high yield savings account or a money market, like don't invest that money. Like it's there for insurance. It's not an investment. But it's there if the, what we're saying, if the roof, you know, leaks or your car breaks down, like whatever it is, or a medical emergency comes up or a family member is sick and you need to fly out and you have money in the bank and you can use that to go and see them, you know, whatever it is, uh, just to have cash available. Again, not a ton, but three to six months, I feel like is a good amount and how important that is. Do you see, do you find that to be helpful or like, oh, what, totally what are your thoughts on that? Totally yeah. agree. I'm a bit more conservative. So I think if possible, maybe six to nine months worth yep. of expenses, if possible. Yep. Yep. I mean, the larger emergency fund you have, the better, right? Because the worst thing you want, the last thing you want is for people have to have to go into credit card debt because they don't have that money to cover their emergency fund. And then with yes. credit card debt, average 15, 20% interest rate, that's really tough to climb out of. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that that's like another big piece to this puzzle. Is that, if I recall correctly, your father, Dave Ramsey, and you came up with the baby steps. Yes. Was that baby step number one, the emergency fund? So the starter emergency fund of like $1,000 okay. is the, is step one. And then getting out of consumer debts is step two. The debt snowball yeah. is step two. And then step three is fully funded emergency fund of three to six months of expenses. And then after that, start saving, you know, retirement, investing, all of that comes baby step four and beyond. So, so yeah. you know all the, I'm sure you have them memorized, right? So take us through what's four through. Okay, yes. So four <laughs> is investing 15% of your income into retirement. Okay. So that's, you know, Roth IRAs. 401k, 403b. Baby step five is kids college. So a 529 or an ESA, putting some money away from there, which would be an interesting discussion because it's changing so rapidly, just college in general. Yeah. With tuition and everything. Baby step six is pay off the home early. And then baby step seven is just build wealth and give generously. So it's the, yeah. So the baby step six, we find people are getting completely debt-free, including their mortgage, all of that. They start paying off their house in seven years. They pay off consumer debt an average of 24 months. 
two years. So within a decade, which again, sounds long, I know, because it's a process. I mean, it's a it's a journey. But to think of having, yeah, even your house paid off on average is what we're seeing. Everything. That's a good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And so then that baby step seven, yeah, you just continue to invest above and beyond the 15% if that's what you want to do. And even outside of that, mutual funds or paid for real estate, whatever it is at that point. And then, yeah, be generous and give. And that's another part of the financial equation. We talk about throughout all of it to be giving at some level, regardless of what baby step you're on. But baby step seven is where, yeah, you just have the means to do incredible stuff with your money and help people. Yeah. That should be the goal for everyone. I know. And to have the autonomy of being able to say, I get to control my life. He talks about that in the psychology of money too. But there's something in us that we all kind of want to be our own boss in a sense, not necessarily from a work standpoint, but almost to a work standpoint. I mean, just that you have the freedom yeah. and the flexibility to make decisions with your life of what you want. And that's that's such a big part of it. Well, and honestly, like even if you do have a boss, knowing that you're financially secure will allow you, if you're ever in a position where you want to quit your job, if you hate it, that financial security gives you that freedom to be able to say, okay, I'm putting in my two weeks notice, even if I may not have another job lined up. Like that is so valuable to feel like you have that control over your life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because there's that, yeah, that viewpoint of like when you don't have debt and you have savings, like we were talking about, you get options back, right? Like you have choices. There's not someone else ruling your life in a sense and ruling your paycheck. And yeah, that freedom. Oh, just to, yeah, have the ability. Having yeah, your, your boss is being a jerk. It's like, all right, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I can't Goodbye. be. I can't be for two months and I don't have to change my lifestyle because I have my money. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is. There's such freedom in that, which oh helps so many people long term. <laughs> Let's talk about the children too, because I know you have children. How are you thinking about setting them up for their future financially? How should other parents that are listening be thinking about making sure that their children are set the way maybe they were not? Yes, it's a great question. So there's such a gift of just like the tactical principles when it comes to money. And I think when you have kids living in your home, like before they're, you know, 18 and leaving, there's a power in teaching them how to handle their own money. And so growing up, like that's one gift my parents gave me is they they filed bankruptcy actually the year I was born. So I was born in April, they filed in September. And so my story really started during that bankruptcy season. And so my early, early memories was them still kind of climbing out of that financial mess. But as they got a little bit more, you know, could see like straight again and were out of that, they really were intentional with us kids. And so like we were never given an allowance. We were always on commission. So you work, you get paid. You don't work, you don't get paid. So I was never (laughs) the kid that was like given $5. Like you had to work. I mean, they were so hardcore about money comes from work. Like that's how you earn money. It does not come from us. It comes from work. And so that was at five, six years old that we were doing that. And so when, when you earn money, we had three little envelopes and it was give, save, and spend. And we had to do all three with the money that we earned that week. They, they made us. You had to put something in giving, you had to put something in saving and something in spending. Did you get to choose how much you put in each one? Yeah, they weren't super legalistic about the amounts, but you they were like, you need to do all three. You need to, to practice all three. But what's funny is they would naturally see, like all of us, you're either like naturally a spender, naturally a saver. And my sister would save. She, if she could, she would just save everything even as a child. And I would go and spend everything, (laughs) even as a child. But learning all of that really was helpful, Erica, because I'm like, gosh, I made, you know, quote unquote money mistakes, like spending money on stuff that breaks. You know, you you learn that at nine, 10 years old. Like you kind of start to put these pieces together even as a kid and you make small financial mistakes under their protection and their roof before the first time ever handling money on your own is when you're, you know, 18, 19. And that's the first time you're ever experiencing any level of responsibility or accountability with your money. So I always encourage parents like any level of doing that. And I even remember my dad, because we got a checking account at 15. That was like your Christmas present. (laughs) As a Ramsey, when you're at your 15th Christmas, like that was one of the gifts is you had your own checking account. And I remember bouncing three checks out of that account at, are you ready for this, Hollister? Oh my gosh. Yeah, rock on Hollister. Yep. (laughs) Went to the mall and who knows how many times that weekend and wrote checks and like just didn't keep up with what I was doing. So yeah, they bounced. And my dad actually made me go down to the bank in person, apologize to the branch manager for lying to him. Get ready for that. Mm -hmm. Because apparently I told him, quote unquote, I had money in his bank to spend and I didn't have money in his bank. And that was a lie. And I had to go apologize (laughs) to him. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I've never bounced a check since. So like, I'm like, I, and they waived my overdraft fees, which was very (laughs) kind of the bank. He probably was like, this is crazy. This kid in my office right now, but 
But I'm like, you know, and again, kind of hardcore, but it's those things that you like are in the ebb and flow of life with your kids. Yeah. Where they just learn that stuff, you know, and you just use real life teachable lessons. As a parent, I'm really focused on the tactical side of money and even what money brings, like we were talking about earlier, kind of the emotions around it, because there is these, these principles of contentment, but that's a heart issue, right? A level of generosity, which is a heart issue, seeing others and not being so me-centric. You know, all of that humility, like there's like these level, these more emotional principles with money that I think they really learn from parents. Like I think when they, if they see me get stressed out and go buy, you know, jeans, mom jeans, every time I'm like stressed out and need a new pair of something, then slowly like that's what they start to pick up on. And so I'm like, okay, what messages am I sending? Not just verbally, but even just in my actions that they're seeing. So your example, parents, is huge. I really do. I think there's a level that where money is placed, money is so important. But if it's the thing, and that's the only thing in your life that you're work, that you're focused on, like you end up, I think, just kind of living a shallow life. Like there's so much more to life than money. Money's a tool yeah. to help you create a life you love. It's a tool to help you buy your time back and like all of that. But that's what it is. It, it's a tool. So that's another thing I think about with my kids is positioning it in the right way. But then, yeah, you can go more technical with college funds and talk about 529s and, you know, let's talk ESA, about it. Yes, ESA's I want to get more technical. <laughs> so I'll be honest. I mean, I still, my husband and I, like there's, like we still will contribute to that. But I am just in my own right thinking, okay, what is college going to be like in 10 years? Because I have a seven-year-old. She's my oldest. So that's 10 years, 11 years till she goes to school. And I'm like, with tuition rising, with people realizing, oh my gosh, trade schools are coming back into full swing again, that you can make as much money going and being a real estate agent, right? Like selling residential real estate out of high school and killing it versus going, you know, but I do believe in higher education. I think there's something about investing in yourself that's really big. And I think there's certain, obviously, industries that you can't go through. You can't even walk through a door unless you have that paper, right? So I'm kind of torn where I'm like, oh man, it's, I just don't know what it's going to be like in 10 years because it's so changing. Or what they're going to choose, right? Like yep, ultimately yep. your children probably want to decide what they want to do. And yes. You don't know. What do you think about college, like collegiate stuff, like in 10 years, if you, if I had the Erica crystal ball? I am very concerned about the rising costs. And I think it's, not justifiable. I don't understand why it costs yeah. $60,000 to attend a school, especially in the last two years when things were remote. I don't understand where all of that money is going to. I feel like that's a huge issue. And then also the value of a college degree, like you're saying, is not as valuable as it once was. Before it was like if you went to college, you were guaranteed a cushy job. But I think there's a large percentage of college graduates that don't even make enough their first year to cover their student loans. Or yeah, I'm I'm concerned. I know it's it's just it's I don't know. I feel like we're living in this like bizarre time too. I think COVID played a huge role, right? Like what you're saying. I'm like remote work and then they're charging the same. And I'm like, what? It's Oh, it's such an interesting, and, and I think we're kind of seeing the underbelly of it too. And I think as millennials, we're the ones that really were the first major generation of of a lot of student loan debt. Like, I feel like we were the ones that were really feeling it even more so than like, you know, what is it, Gen Y or boomers or all of that. And so I think we're kind of the ones who stirring the pot, which I like a little bit too, where I'm like, <laughs> yeah, is the ROI there? Is it there? I think the ROI thing is such a good point. And asking these colleges, looking at the data, seeing, okay, what percentage of your graduates have a job right out of college? What is the average salary of your graduates? And looking at that, because it's obvious to me that the Harvards and Stanfords and Yales, those degrees are still going to be valuable. And for many years they will be because you're really buying into that network. But it is kind of those lower tiered schools where I don't know if the ROI is there anymore. Right, right, yep. But ultimately you have decided to put money into five to nines for your kids. What kind of went into that decision? Yes, yeah, so with ESA, educational savings account, you can only max out a certain amount every year and there's an income limit. So if you make above that, then a 529 will be your next best option. And I always say, you know, to make sure it's a 529 that you're in control of. So there are some investors that will, you know, investment professionals that you take your money to. And it's almost a computer system where they, they look at the age of your child and depend on what funds that it goes in aggressive, not again, depending on the age and all these other, you know, uh, criterias. So I like ones that you're in control of where you say, hey, I want to be able to pick the mutual funds that go within the 529. And I'm not a big fan of prepaid tuition, which also falls under 529. So I would avoid any prepaid tuition, state-specific tuition 
tuition or funds that like you don't have the ability to change if you want. So making sure that, yeah, you look at the options to say, okay, I want to be able to have a say over it. That's kind of my best bet. But I would talk to an investment professional when, and you know, you can do that when you're talking about your retirement, 401ks, all of that, 529s will be part of that plan too. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. Let's talk about the living paycheck to paycheck, how so many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. How did we get into that place? And then how do we get out? You know, this is hard because money... You know, it flows two ways, right? You have it. You could have an income problem, or you could have, you know, an expense expenses problem. All your expenses, and so looking at both sides of the formula, I think, is really important. So I do know that there's a part of the population that it's like I have. I'm a single mom, and I have three kids, and I can. I this is the job I work. This is the income I have, and I have to support all of us. Like, like there is a absolute feeling of I'm not doing anything extravagant. I'm barely making ends meet, and that's my, that's the situation, right? So there's kind of that, that part of the population. I think there's part of the population that we talked about earlier that there is a level of things that you think you need and they really are wants. And you just live this certain level of lifestyle that everyone else is in your neighborhood or where you are. And it just is what it is. And you don't question it. And you just assume like, this is where I have to be. I think that's part of it. I think that there's, you know, even when you look at income, you know, I think the lifestyle creep is a real thing too. Even if you get a raise, it's like, oh, well, that's kind of nice. I can, you know, go here, here. I can do this. I can do that. And then you look up and you're like, it's been a decade. And you think, wait, how how am I still living paycheck to paycheck? And it's that mm-hmm. those small decisions that creep into, right? So I think there's a lot of factors. One of the biggest things is getting is getting income up. And, and that may be more than ever, I think, now shopping for jobs and looking at different places, right? I think for so long, especially before COVID, you kind of were in the same job and working and and going. But now when people can work remote, you can change jobs. You can like actually have options. I feel like within industries now that maybe you didn't even pre-2020, people are more bold, I think, to ask for raises, all of like whatever it is in that sense, like getting your income up or even taking a side hustle. Yeah. for a season, that that's a big thing right now. And there's so many of those, which is so great. There's so many options there. So looking into raising your income. And then as we're talking about kind of cutting expenses and seeing, okay, what do I really need to cut? Those are the big things. And then obviously debt, like if you if you don't have payments, think about how much margin you would have. I saw a thing, Erica, that the average new car payment now is close to $900. So I'm like, if you just freed up $1,000 in your budget, like that gives you, that gives you margin, right? But it's making these choices that we were talking about earlier that can be really hard, but it's so beneficial on the long end of not of not having those payments. So again, I think it, I think there's a lot of reasons why. And then inflation hasn't helped. I mean, I think people really are feeling it. I mean, I know I am. You know, when you go to the grocery store and you're like, oh my gosh, eggs or whatever it is that it just crazy. costs. Yeah, it just costs more. Toothpaste, everything. Yes, everything. And so that's what's hard too is having to go back and say, okay, in order to have my needs met, what are the things that I I am going to have to lower? And no one likes to go backwards either, right? I think as part of who we are, we're like, everyone wants to have forward progress. And when you feel like you're going back, it's more mag- it feels just more magnified. And I think that's where we are as a country too. And, you know, I saw an article, I mean, who knows, but in the next 18 to 24 months, they see it going, inflation going back down and settling back down. So hopefully that's the case. But also I would say if a small tick of your grocery budget, you know, even 20%, if that has rocked your world, 
there's probably other things in your budget you need to look at to change too, because it's, it is really hard and it's affected a lot of people, but I want people to question their whole financial picture and not just their grocery budget. The job part is interesting too, because the average raise is 3%, but that doesn't counteract inflation. Whereas if you hop jobs on average, you'll get a 10 to 15% raise. Oh, wow. So that I really think is the way to go. We're past the generation where you want to stay loyal to one company for 20 years. The pension and all of that, yeah. right? Like it's a different that's world just, now. That's a different world. I think the way to increase your income is to shop around to find a job that values you. And you do get that 10, 15, sometimes 20% increase when you switch to that job. Yes. And if you do that, I studied it. I put it all down in an Excel sheet. Staying at one job for 20 years, getting a 3% raise versus hopping jobs every three years, you end up with more than double the income after that end of the 15, 20-year period. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I would say too, that sometimes it's not an income problem. So, but by doing that, make sure you don't take your bad money habits with you, you yes. know, as, <laughs> as you're getting these raises too, you know? And so like getting your income up with really great money habits could change everything. I mean, it really could. Do you think, is there, um, do you find hopping like for every three years, is that a negative on a resume or are people getting used to that now, employers? I feel like people are getting used to that. Two to three years seems like the right time. I feel like if you're hopping every year, that's a bit too much. But from the employer side, I feel like it's very common now to see people progressing as long as the title is also progressing and you're able to justify why you made that move. I think it's totally fine. So great, which would be a huge, I mean, such a game changer. I mean, like, that's crazy. Even like, I appreciate you putting that in Excel. <laughs> I was like, that's so, but to have double, I'm like, and what you could do with that. And again, not sending it to car payments and not like overspending when you get those raises, but letting that money work for you yeah. is incredible. So that's that's awesome. And the habits thing is so true. I think the best time to create good money habits is when you have no money. Because I always said the one thing that allowed me to pay off my student loans so quickly was that I continued to live like a broke law student. The moment, if I had gone to my first job as a lawyer and allowed myself to live the lawyer lifestyle that everyone was living, I would not have been able to pay off the loans as quickly. But I just kept living like a broke student, meaning walking to work, even though I could afford to take an Uber yes. and taking lunch to work, even though I could afford to, you know, go out and eat with my friends. It's those simple habits that you create, easier to create when you don't have money, that if you can carry those through once you do have money, that's going to make the biggest difference in your life. That's such a great point too, because like we were saying, going backwards is so hard. But if you weren't going backwards in the first place, right? And starting, <laughs> I'm like, it is. I'm like, it just helps you. And how much money is a magnifying glass? Like it makes you more of what you are. And if you have those good money habits in place and you start, then you go get the big lawyer job and you start saying, oh my gosh, I'm making this money. What those habits are, that's going to magnify. Or if you're not great with money and you have bad money habits and you go and get a big job and, and you make this huge income, that's gonna, those problems are going to be magnified. Yeah. So the income doesn't always fix it. And so starting off where you are, oh, especially for young people, oh, Yes, instilling those money habits now. It is. It's it's so much easier to instill money habits, yeah, early on when there's not much to compare it to versus like when you're even if you're in your 40s or 50s, you can still, you can definitely still change your money habits, but it's changing decades of what you're used to. Mm -hmm. And it's just more of a friction point of that change. And no one likes change, right? Like we we are all uncomfortable with doing something new. But when your basis where you're starting out are these good money habits, it's such a great point. Yeah, because every spending category, there's a ladder of spending. And I can show you, you go from the Honda to the BMW to the Ferrari. Like there's no cap to how much you can elevate your lifestyle. But the problem is once you go to the BMW, you don't want to come back down to the Honda. That's right. Whereas if you realize the Honda is a great drive and gets you to point A from point A to point B, and if you stay with that, even as your income increases, then you're totally fine. Yes. Right? And I think our problem is I'm like, we want to, we want to look successful regardless of what is going on behind the scenes. And that's what's so hard where I'm like, it takes a level of humility to be like, no, I'm going to drive the Honda. Even if I, you know, I have a net worth of millions of dollars, like I don't care, but that's the point. I like you when you said it earlier, like actually when I had the money, I stopped caring what people think too. Like yeah. there, there's that, there's a truth to that of trying to like look rich, right? To actually build true wealth. And when you actually have money in the bank, you're like, I'm great, I'm good. This is, I, I'm content here. Investing. Yes, yes. <laughs> so obviously we touched on inflation. We don't want our money to just sit in the bank account, lose out to inflation every single year. 
How do you think about investing your money and how do you tell your audience to invest their money? Yeah, I always think about investing as more long-term. So five years or more. And it's really hard. And especially we just funded our retirement accounts for the year. Uh, In January, we try to do that. We try to go ahead and max everything out at the beginning of the year to have the year's growth. And Spender Rachel's still in there. Like I've tamed her over the years and she's had to learn to save. But I'll be honest, Erica, I'm like, even like, oh, writing a check, you know, to to retirement, I'm like, okay, 60-year-old Rachel's going to love, love Rachel today. Like she's going to love 35-year-old Rachel, but but it is still hard. It's a delayed gratification to put money in and to know like, this is what I'm doing. And it's going to be for the long term. It is a long ride. And I think where people mess up is like a year we had in 2022, where they freak out, they either stop investing or they even pull their money out and get dinged with penalties and fees because they're fearful. And so I think the biggest piece of advice when it comes to investing is it is long-term, like stay in the ride. And Warren Buffett, one of my favorite quotes from him, he said, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And greedy, I don't like that word specifically, but I get what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And I really love that because I'm like, it is so true. Like when you still invest, even in a bad market, you're continuing, you get to buy more, right? Your money goes further when you're investing and and it's low. As it starts gaining again and rising up, which I believe it will, I believe in the economy enough that I really do, I I believe it will go back up. You get all that gain. I mean, you get to ride that out and you get to earn all that interest that if you keep trying to get in when it's good again, you miss that growth. And so there's such such an important factor to like almost plug your ears, not to be ignorant, but if you watch the news on any level of cable news, I don't care which channel it is, you feel like the world's coming to an end all the time. And so there is the sense of like, I'm in it for the long term. And let's be honest, if the entire thing crashed, like we're all screwed. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like all of our plans have changed. And so I just have a belief that I'm in it for the long term. And even though it's not fun, some some years to look at it and be like, oh, that didn't do it. I just, it's, it's still a consistent investing regardless of what's going on, I think is really important. And that again, everything we're saying goes back to habits and creating those habits when you're young. Like when you're young, start investing regularly and realize that you don't care about the temporary ups and downs of the stock market because you're in it for the long term. Because what I've seen, my dad, I saw him freak out, pull out all, almost all the money from his 401k because of a temporary dip in the market. But, and it's of course harder when you're closer to retirement and that is your retirement money that you're looking at and you're three years, four years out from retirement. It's easier said than done. But creating those young, those habits from when you're young of, hey, I'm not going to care about these temporary ups and downs. I'm in it for the long term really will help you when you're getting close to retirement and starting to panic a bit more because <laughs> it right. is closer. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, and I like putting my money in something that has a long track record too. And so anything that pops up like crypto or like other things that like look really shiny and exciting, I always am weary. I'm like, okay, I'm going to let, I'm going to let that ride out and see what ends up happening. And again, maybe I'm not a quote unquote early adopter, but let me just see how this pans out over a few years. And then maybe I'll consider, you know, a different, doing something different with my money, but even just, and it's so boring. I feel like just like a Roth IRA and a 401k and all that. But for me, I'm like, if I'm going to put my money somewhere, I want to see a long track record. And I, that I, I have a pretty much a guarantee of knowing on average, like this is what it's going to do. And again, yeah, you're putting it in and you're, you have the habit of just not freaking out. And we always say the only person that gets hurt on a roller coaster is the person that jumps off. So, Mm -hmm. so even though it's a crazy ride, ride it out, but it's, but it's hard. It can be hard because fear is a real thing. And, and again, as we talked about emotions a lot in this podcast with money, it can override a lot. And when you're fearful, it, you can make some really bad money decisions. So yeah. don't do it out of fear. And for those riskier investments, I mean, I, I'm pretty conservative, but I like having risky investments, but it's all about the portfolio allocation, right? My risky investments are 5%, maybe less than 10% of my overall portfolio. So if it goes up, amazing. If it goes down, I don't really feel the pain. It's not the end of the world. Yes. I know I heard someone cash out their 401k to buy crypto. This was back like in 20, was it 2020? Maybe during the pandemic and everything. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh gosh. So yeah, you're exactly right. The diversification and the percentages, right? What you're allocating. I'm like, yeah, if you're going to go do something, yeah. Is a little bit doesn't have that long term track record. Make sure it doesn't completely wreck your entire 
yeah. financial picture. Ooh, <laughs> notes. I wanted to do something fun. So I don't know if you know this story, but when your team reached out to me initially, yeah. the first sentence was something like, I know you and Rachel have differing views when it comes to money, but I think it would still be great to come on the podcast. So <laughs> I feel like, okay. <laughs> I, I was like, uh, I don't know where we differ, but where do you think we differ in terms of our money views? Okay, I think and the let's one have thing, a hot seat debate. Yeah, I love this. <laughs> okay, credit cards. Okay, let's do it. Yes, because uh, <laughs> again, I get it, mathematically all of it. But I, yes, I'm just not. I'm not a fan of credit cards, and so the debit card is, yeah, is my primary, is my primary card. It is because it is why? the other card. You've you've seen too many people fall. Yeah, into credit I think card it's debt. that. And honestly, Erica, I've gotten to the point of just talking to so many people that I'm like, it's a very black and white view. I know that we hold at Ramsey with this. But I'm like, for me, whether it's teaching and telling other people, like you can, you can live life. You can live life without debt. Like this is so possible, even without a credit card. You can do it. And here's proof. We'll show you how. And seeing the underbelly of just the industry of like, you know, how banks make their money, it is off interest. And the people that are paying interest are those that, you know, this, you know, that aren't paying their bill because they're maybe the 70% that are living paycheck to paycheck. It's just this mm. whole, like, it's the whole industry that I almost am, like, grossed out by <laughs> that I'm like, I don't even want to, like, play the games. And I get it. I get the Southwest credit card points. Like, I, like, I, you know, it's so funny. All of my friends have credit cards. And so whenever we go on trips, they're like, we're buying this with Southwest credit card points. And I'm like, you're okay. I'm not, I'm not going to, like, not be friends with you. Debt is not a sin. I'm not, like, absolutely freaked out by it. But there is a, there is, like, this, for me, ultimate, like, ultimate freedom. They're like, okay, once it's paid in the moment, you know, we went and had a great breakfast here in the city. And I'm like, and once it's swiped, like it's done. Like I won't get a bill for that. Like it's. So you don't have a single credit card? No, I don't have a single credit card. Will you ever have one? I don't think so. No, because I, I don't need one. I mean, for me, I'm like, I've done it without it. So then you pay cash for your flights? Do I? Yes. I know, Erica, you're going to kill it. I know. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, like, I mean, it's interesting. Crazy. Look, I, yeah. I don't, I think that's fine for some people. I do think if you want to play the game, there are so many good ways to play the game with credit cards and get yes. credit card points to fly business class for free. I just upgraded to first class on a 16-hour flight with my credit card points. Like, that's cool because I would never pay cash for that. But yep. with credit card points, it feels so nice. Totally. Like, no, oh. and I get it. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I totally, I totally understand. Yeah, so... But you know they have travel protections too. Have you read the fine print of the credit card benefits? You, Erica, <laughs> in your Instagram, I have. Uh, yeah, and and I'm like, you know, studies have shown that you spend less when you spend with your money, so whether it's cash or a debit card versus a credit card, because the the emotion isn't always there. And so for me, which you'll probably never know, but I am curious. I'm like, I wonder, playing the game, is there a level of justification of spending? thinking like, okay, yeah, just add that in. That's fine. Because on the back end, I'm going to get something for it. So I'll spend more in the moment because I know I'm getting something, right? And I know probably consciously people are thinking that, or may maybe they are, maybe yeah. some people are. But I do wonder the spending in the present, how much more is spent trying to play the game versus just spending your own money. Well, I think there have been studies on that. And I think that's accurate that if you spend with hard cash, cash yeah. it's harder to part ways with it because it's physical. You see that $100 bill get crunched down into <laughs> $27 or whatever it yeah. is. So I do think, I think there are levels to everything. And it comes down to what we've been talking about, the habits. Do you have good habits? If you do not, then don't try to play the credit card game like I do. If you do have good habits, then I think it's great to be spending as you normally would and get all of the benefits and perks that come along with credit cards. Yeah. If you don't and it's going to cause you to spend more or go further into debt, yeah, I, I completely agree. Pay all with cash or debit card. And do it, yes, yeah. But I think, honestly, that's it, Erica. I don't, think we, I don't think we have it. I don't think we have a ton. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a big fight, more dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to, like, get at it. It's interesting. See, like, I see both sides of everything. Yes, I don't have yes. very, like, strong, it's my way or the highway when it comes to personal finance. Totally. I really just want to help as many people as I can. And my biggest thing with personal finance is it is personal, and it's about... If my goal is to help as many people as I can, it would be ridiculous for me to think that I know the right way for every single person because I don't know every individual. And yeah, you and really have to like dig into what motivates them, what you know, what they should avoid because they have shown themselves in the past that they should avoid those things. And 
Yes. Yeah. And I think on my end, I think what's been helpful, so whether it's like the baby steps or probably taking more of a black and white approach on different things is I think people are so bombarded by information. Like, just tell me what to do. And there's like that level of direction and instruction and inspiration in it. And the truth is like, get people that follow the quote unquote Ramsey plan. Some of them, we call it like Ramsey-ish. Like they're like, oh yeah, I'll do like 70% 70% yeah. and I have my 30% of it, right? So I think at the end of the day, you are a grown up and you're an adult. As my therapist would always say, you're you're a grown ass woman. Like, like you, like you <laughs> are, you know, you get to make decisions about your life and your money. And so at the end of the day, I think people do that, right? What is that first point of change for people who feel like they are hopeless and will never get out of their money issues? I think the very first thing is just belief. Yeah. I mean, it really, I think that you can get so bogged down with the numbers and money is interesting because it it does have a number to it where other parts of our lives don't. Like we could say like, you're a great podcaster, but there's not like a number, right? I guess there's ratings and reviews, but like (laughs) there's not like this like one one through 10, this is how good you are. But your money, your net worth has become your self-worth in our world today. And like that number plays such a role in someone's life. And I want people to separate from that and to say like, you have to have the belief that that can change, that your money mistakes while you see it in the red, maybe right in front of you, that is not who you are. Like you have the ability to change what you've been doing with your money and it is not your identity. But that that's really one of the first big steps is just that belief. Because if you don't have the belief that nothing will change, you won't do anything different. So you have to believe that. And then the second would be the budget. Yeah. <laughs> no, create I a love, budget I and like that. see the numbers on paper. Well, it's hard, like you're saying, because there is so much shame associated with it. People, the, I think it's so hard to face the numbers a lot of people don't know how much they have saved, how much income they have, how much they're spending. Just because it is, the first step is very hard to just actually face those numbers and see that maybe it's not as sweet as you thought. Yes. Oh, I know. And that's, yeah, the ignorance is bliss thing doesn't work. And per, you got to face it. You do. And yeah. it takes courage and it's going to be not fun. So get a glass of wine <laughs> and just sit down and do it because, yeah, you have to have that starting point. And even though it's scary, and sometimes, you know, yeah, it could be way worse than what you're expecting. But also I think it's magnified. The fear in your mind might be magnified. And maybe when you get all the numbers down and you see it, you're like, okay, this is what I'm working with. There's a sense of like control that you have seeing that, that may actually kind of calm your anxiety too. Yeah. I'm going to put you in the hot seat again this time for how to deal with money with your spouse. Yes. Oh, this is a hot topic, Erica. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most hate I get on social media. I will say, I will say, don't, don't use credit card. I mean, I will say a lot, but this one, this triggers a lot of people. So I am all for when, when you're married that you are one and you combine accounts, you work out of the same pots that when the money hits the account, regardless of who brings in what, you together as a team work together to say, okay, this is our money and our household. So what are we going to do with it? No separate accounts? No separate accounts. Don't you find that's, I feel like that's just so dangerous for both parties. Okay, so Have why? you seen divorce in your families? No, but I do know closely, yes, how that can happen for sure. So yes, I understand the fear going in and especially if it's a second marriage, if someone has that ability or that that mindset where they've been burned before. So I, I get it. And if you are in some type of abuse situation or addiction, like if there is some, like if there is immediate danger in something, absolutely. Like you have to protect yourself. And even to a point, I mean, we've even taken calls that like, you know, there's a six-year-old woman and her husband literally just keeps spending everything and she's not gonna be able to retire. And it's like, okay, there's a point there that you have to make a decision. But for majority of couples who are getting married, I find that not only do you win with money faster when you see yourself as the same team, but there's a, there's a marriage quality that changes when you say we are going to be one in every aspect of our lives as we join together in marriage, including our money. And so that oneness there, and again, it's not a money thing. It's kind of going layers deeper of saying like, I, I'm fully committed to you and I trust you. And like, we're in this together. And there's a, there's an intimacy there when you aren't just business transaction partners of splitting bills, you know, it's, it's, we are a family, like we are doing this together. So, but can't you achieve that same intimacy by having a joint bank account and then two separate bank accounts? The way I view that is in the budget, like I have a Rachel line item and he has a Winston line item. And so I'm like, yeah, I get to go spend this amount that we agree on. He spends the amount that we agree on for him. Like 
we have the ability to go and spend and enjoy and I don't have to ask him for every, you know, new pair of shoes or something. I'm like, I'm buying this. Like it's, it's there. It's allotted. Like I still have the freedom to go and sit, spend and be independent on what I want to spend my money on. It's not like I'm having to go and ask his permission or him having to go ask my permission, but it's agreed upon on the budget, but it's all out of the same account. And we, the budgeting app, I was mentioned every dollar, like we have the same account. So as we like drag and drop transactions and I find too, again, it's kind of tactical, but as life happens, we're on the same page, even with that of like, oh, I just signed, you know, our five-year-old up for dance camp this summer. And so I'm putting that in the budget here, put that for July, you know, eighth week. And we put on the calendar. Like it ends up just being this like connection point, even in communication when it comes to our family. So working out of the same account and all of it, there's something about saying it's not your money or his money. It's our money together. And it, that that noun change, or that verb change, adverb change, I don't know. I think it's big for the marriage. I, th- <laughs> I disagree, obviously, but I respect your opinion. Yeah, I respect yours too, Erica. <laughs> I respect yours too. I realize, like, it's so funny. The lawyer in me, I'm so argumentative. But then the podcast host is like, I'm a very nice podcast host, and I don't want to be rude to my guests yes, or anything. No, so you're we'll, we'll you're agree great. to disagree on this one. Yes. I think it's, for me, I think it's really important to have separate bank accounts. I do not have a joint bank account with my husband. It's all separate. And because I value independence, I value I value our marriage, but I also value being independent when it comes to money. I want to be able to walk away from a relationship if things ever go bad and know that I have my own money. I'm protected in that sense. And I think that sense of security that having an independent account gives me is so worth it. And I don't see it impacting our relationship in any negative way. But I can, I, as with everything, yes. I see both sides. That's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> can I ask a tactical question yeah. on that? So do you guys split, or if this is too personal, we don't talk about it, but like how do, how do you guys do the bills and the expenses, even just like you, like how do you, how, does he have a certain thing that he pays? Is it fair? Do you end up paying more? Is it, is it who makes more money, pays more? How do you guys do it? Ours is pretty fair and it's not, it's sometimes like domain related. So if I'm paying for rent, then he'll pay for groceries and all these other things. So, so what happens if you go to the grocery store? Does he like Venmo you? No, we don't. We don't worry about the transferring. Okay. I think when I, when I had less money, I was way more concerned about it. Like we would, he would transfer me back money. Is that weird though, Erica? I think it's fine. I think it's <laughs> fine. like it works. <laughs> but now we're more relaxed about it. Yeah, like it's totally. more or less what we spend is even. Yes, yes, but yes, before, yes. Oh yeah, before I would track everything and then he would have to Venmo me back. Yes, back And money. if he didn't, would you be like going to bed and you're like, hey, you got to Venmo me? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, he, he just would. It would get yeah, transferred. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's interesting too because that causes a big debate of when you are splitting expenses between couples, should it be 50-50? Should it be based on who has a higher income? Yeah. It's yep. interesting. That's I did a video about it, and that was probably my most controversial video because people are, feel very strongly mm. on both sides. Yes. Yep. Yep. Which makes sense where I'm like, yeah, yeah. Do you punish the one that gets paid more in a sense that they have to yeah. take more? But it makes sense mathematically. You would take, yeah, all of it. Or I you don't just have put the it right all in one account and you just, yeah. you just function out of that. I feel like some of the things that we did, like rent for us was 50-50, but then dinners out, he would pay a little more for because he made more money. But I don't know. Again, I don't know the right answer to that one either. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's good. (laughs) It's interesting though, because when you talk about relationships and money, that is the point where people just feel very strongly about their opinion. Very, very much so. Yeah, and I do find that people will go separate checking accounts and they tell me all the time, they're like, because we fight less. Like when we had it together, God, we would just fight all the time. But in my mind, I'm like, that's the fight you should be having. Like by separating accounts, you're avoiding the subject that, again, money is never really about money. There is always things underneath. Like what is the thing underneath that's causing you frustration? If you were to share an account, is it because you feel like that they're spending and they're irresponsible and that's you're losing trust? Because like, what is the root issue and the root problem? So couples that do the separate account to quote unquote avoid fighting, in my opinion, I'm like, that's the fight you should be having to get to a level of intimacy to know your spouse. Like, that's the thing to, like, get down into because that's going to come out in other areas of your marriage in a great way. Like, when you start to be unified on this thing that you're fearful of, you're scared, you're frustrated, like, whatever that thing is, that pain point, get to that root and work through it. And then out of that, that same habit, that same mindset is going to come in 
careers and friendships and raising kids together. Like it comes all these ways. It's not just money problems. And that's what it comes out of. And a lot of people just put the bandaid on. So I'm like, get underneath that and understand like what is causing that money problem. I agree on the fact that it is important to talk about these, but that reminds me, one of the points that I like about separate accounts is just you, I don't want one spouse to feel like they have more control over the other spouse because of money, because maybe they make more money. Like if, if someone is making a hundred thousand dollars and putting that into the joint bank account and someone's making 50,000, I don't want the person who's making a hundred thousand to feel like they can spend more and have more control over what's in the joint account. The reason I like separate, I don't want to be accountable to anyone. Like I want to, if I want to go spend a hundred dollars on something, I don't want to have to ask for permission or be accountable. And I know you yeah. were saying you don't have that with your relationship, but all relationships are different. And I yes. can I can tell you with certainty that some people who have joint accounts, there's a power dynamic there that I just feel icky about. And that's why I do think it's important to have that separation. Because, you know, marriages too, when things are going well, great. But when yeah. things are going poorly, it can go downhill very fast. Yes. And yes. to not have that individual backing and the protection and the confidence to know that, hey, th I have this pot of money that is separate, that's my own. I think that's where it scares me a little because I've seen people stay in relationships that they shouldn't stay in because money. Because of that, yes, yeah. And Because I, they have a joint account and they feel like they don't have the money to walk away. And that's what, if I'm going down to the core of why I think separate is important, like that's what scares me. It's just that, that power dynamic and the control and for one half of the equation, like someone feeling like they lack control. And I would say if you do the joint checking and if that is keeps rising to be a problem again, I think that's more of a, I think that's a marriage problem that's going to come out in other areas of your life and not just when you're looking at your money. So, so we agree to disagree about, on yeah, this one. Yes, I haven't do. convinced you, you haven't <laughs> convinced me, but we did our best. We're still friends. <laughs> I love this. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Rachel Cruz Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Rachel taught me this? I would say that Rachel taught me that I can change my financial situation, that I have the ability to get up tomorrow morning and make a different decision with my money, whether that's becoming debt-free, whether that's investing or not in a kid's college fund <laughs> in the honor conversation. Uh, whatever it is, like you, you have the ability of choice. And even though it's hard and life is going to happen, there is still this idea that, man, I have a level of control, not a lot of control over my life, but some level of control when my money hits my checking account that I get to decide what to do with it. I love that. Thank you. So good. Thank you. Eric. Thanks for having me. This is Yay. such an honor. <laughs> it really was. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.